really with genetics, the whole promise of the field has been, can we get to people before they get sick? I'm not quite yet at the point of advocating universal testing because I think the way this information is handled is really important and I'm not sure we're there yet. So I think at the moment, probably the most effective thing to do is targeted testing. It may be that at some point we're able to do effective universal testing and we'll see what happens. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Poor Allison Kurian never had a chance. The daughter of two prominent academics, she was destined by genetics and environment, it seems, to become the exceptional scholar and clinician oncologist she's now become. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is sponsored by Rockpoint. Rockpoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to www.rockpointwithane.com. So, David. Yes, Lisa. Today's guest, as I understand it, was strongly influenced by the traits of her parents. What influence do you think your folks had in the path you ultimately pursued? Yeah. Now, I met your parents. Yeah. They are awesome, by the way. Cool. Note to self. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, um, I sort of grew up in the environment. So my, my parents both like a sort of an academic physician scientist. Um, and, you know, growing up, it was so a couple of things. One, they loved what they did. So it really inspired me to want to do something, you know, in many ways that was similar. Because, you know, they, they're just happy. They're, I mean, not, it wasn't like nonstop joy, but I mean, they're really engaged in what they're doing. I just sort of, and, and I, it also was very normalizing that, uh, you know, I remember thinking everyone's parents spent their weekends writing grants and writing <laughs> papers. And I remember going to someone's, you know, some business dude's house, um, you know, the son of a business guy, and the guy was just hanging out watching golf. And so, I, like, I innocently asked him, oh, when do you write your grants? And he just sort of <laughs> gave, gave me a look. So uh, anyway, so with that, um, we are pleased, nay, overjoyed, to welcome to the program today Dr. Allison Curian, one of my very favorite people. We did many of our clinical rotations together in the last two years of medical school, which generally consisted of my playing goofus to her gallant. If she wasn't so funny, sharp-witted, and down-to-earth, in a nerdy academic way, you could be forgiven for being intimidated by her raw intelligence and fund of knowledge. Welcome to the show, Allison. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you, and thank you so much for the kind introduction. So you're obviously suffering from deep, deep scars from having to work this closely with David over the years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, we'll see the effects of 30 years of therapy. Oh, um, it was fantastic. I think we all need some therapy from our residency days. Absolutely <laughs> true. Knowing David was a highlight. Yeah, clearly. All right. So, Allison, in the same way that Eddie Murphy <laughs> has famously described himself as coming from a predominantly black family, <laughs> you come from a predominantly academic family. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about the family you grew up in? Yes, indeed. And, and, and I do agree with your descriptor that I probably never had a chance. So... <laughs> <laughs> But both my parents were indeed professors, and David, perhaps that's why we've always gotten along so well, as we are we're similarly same yeah, scars, yeah. yes, by our, <laughs> by our early conditions. Uh, my parents too would spend the weekend getting grants. I mean, that's what everybody does, right? Sure, you know. So exactly. 
so at any rate, uh, my father is a biochemist. Your dad's Chris, Chris Walsh. I mean, so people know who they are. Yeah. Yep. My mother, a medical sociologist who later became a college president. President of Wellesley, by the way. Yeah. Right. Both very hardworking. Uh, and it was always sort of fun because around the house, we had various forms of molecular structure, drawings as artwork. And we always had several in the bathroom and visitors would sort of peer at them. Uh, but again, it, it was it was a great environment to grow up in. Lots of passion for work. And uh, I think I really never realized how weird we all were until I was probably in my teenage years. And did they, did, you know, my guess is they probably didn't have to give you a lot of encouragement to, uh, to study. What kind of influence did they have on you when you were growing up? I mean, would they, would you guys have talk about deep, sophisticated topics, assuming you were ever all three home at the same time for dinner? <laughs> Yes, occasionally we were all home at the same time. My parents claim that they cooked. I have no memory of this at all, unfortunately. And I use that to justify the fact that I never cook because, you know, my son wouldn't remember it anyway. Uh, But... But at any rate, uh, we we had some some of those conversations. But also, you know, the great thing about my parents, and particularly my father, is he had a great sense of humor, still does, and really enjoyed watching low-key television. His favorite show was actually Cops, and he would sing along to it. So <laughs> we had some good... I did uh, not know that. Oh, that is an unexpected he fact. He did. It was fabulous. So we do have some, some sort of regular person uh, influences from time to time. That's funny. Well, but, but speaking of non-regular person things, I mean, what sort of... I mean, my guess is the sort of people who would regularly sort of traffic through your house um, probably was a bit unusual, right? We did. And, you know, again, I had the privilege of meeting lots of faculty at Harvard and MIT who were fantastic, some later Nobel Prize winners and that sort of thing. Uh, Generally, they were lovely and had reasonable social skills, so all good. I illegally parked in the Nobel lot at Berkeley once. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I didn't know there was a lot. How interesting. There there is. is. There is. There is actually a parking lot at Berkeley. That's fantastic. Wow. Stanford will have to follow suit, but we, we haven't yet. I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sorry to hear it. It's probably an honor of some kind. So so it seems like you could have, just through osmosis, have continued on to um, uh, school in Boston, but you chose to go to college at uh, Stanford, which uh, much to Lisa's regret as a Berkeley person. Go but, um and now you, of course, are on the faculty at Stanford. But can you tell <laughs> yes, us they about get rid of me. that? Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about that um, initial fateful choice to go to Stanford? Absolutely. So, so this really was the result of a, a ill-fated, perhaps you know, unwise visit that my mother allowed me to take to uh, San Francisco when I was about sixteen, and we drove up Palm Drive at Stanford, and, and that was it. As, as I think I may have mentioned to David before, it was a thunderbolt, mm-hmm. love at first sight. Uh, there it was, and uh, I then later applied, got on the waiting. List, wrote many begging, desperate letters to be let in, and they, they <laughs> unfortunately were ground down by my persistence and caved. And that's really the story of how I ended up there in the first place and back here now. And then you really liked it, though, in college, right? I mean, it wasn't just oh, the weather, it. but the people. So what, what about it made it such a good experience for you, um, maybe even in contrast to um, your, experience, your, your sort of school experiences prior? Right. I think, you know, in Boston, I went to a rather traditional all-girls private school, which was academically very strong. As one does. Indeed. Indeed, one does. There's there's little escape from that either. Uh, academically very strong, socially rather uh, not to my liking. And I uh, then at Stanford found a much freer environment, uh, more diverse, both intellectually and ethnically. And I liked that a lot. And I found it to be a place that really appreciates ideas and creativity and 
doesn't impose a lot of top-down rules. That's very much true as a faculty member, and I've liked that a lot. Well, that's very, very cool. And now, again, you excelled in everything, um, and you enjoyed the science and the humanities, but you edged towards science because I think you thought it seemed more definitive. Is that right? What, were your, what was your thinking there? That, that is right. You know, I, I, again, I don't do well with things that I think of as sort of squishy. So, you know, things that are very relative, you know, modern humanities, not really being sure whether something is good or bad, or how do you, how do you judge a piece of work? All of those things make me anxious. And, you know, clearly that's a flaw on my part. Um, so your whole career is like managing your anxiety. It is. It is. I have many examples of this, right? But you'd think I would just find a way to get treated or something. But uh, at any rate... Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so, so I don't do well with things that aren't anchored in some sort of uh, basic uh, structure. And so that's one of the things I like about science is that it's, it's de- relatively definitive, or at least should be reproducible. So I like that a lot. Uh, but, but I always love to read. I liked narrative and literature. And so that's sort of how I ended up heading toward medicine, because it seemed like a combination of those you know, It's interesting because we've had another guest uh, on the show uh, who will appear after you, uh, Toyin Ajahi, that talked about Stanford as being a place where you had to almost default to being an entrepreneur and a startup in the startup culture uh, to be, you know, the norm there. It sounds like both you, both you and and she have kind of went. Well, she had actually ended up there. She did default there in the end, but it sounds like you kind of took a different path. You didn't have to be a startup entrepreneur. You don't, and it's good because I really have no business sense at all. So that's fortunate that that isn't absolutely required. <laughs> but uh, I think of it as a place that's that's very sort of free form. And I, I really have felt less pressure here to do anything that I didn't want to do than any other institution I've ever seen. So I've really enjoyed that. Interesting. Yep. So then you liked it so much you left. Um, and you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you went, yes. You headed were, back to Boston. Right. Seven, um, year, seven years of labor back in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, one of the things that I thought must have been such an interesting experience is so, um, you, know, uh, you know, we mentioned both of your parents are very, very prominent academics. But at Harvard, at Harvard Medical School, your dad is really a rock star professor who teaches <laughs> med. That's a fact. Um, who, who teach, <laughs> you're very kind. Who t- you're very kind. Yeah. No, no, but that is a fact. And who, who that, like you're talking about scientific facts, that is a fact. Um, who, he teaches the med student in, uh, one of the, uh, in a, several, but I think he co-leads, at least for a new pathway or whatever they're calling it now, one of the med student introductory classes. He did. So what was it like to show, you know, biochemist, right? Chemist, biochemist? Yes, indeed. Yeah. So yep. he... Um, you show up in the students like, "Hey, Dad." I mean, what? <laughs> like, what was that experience He's like? like? Totally going to bust you if you cut class, right? Well, I did study harder for that module than for anything else, and it is funny because my father and I look exactly like. I mean, talk about genetics; it's very funny. And so, I think it was it was immediately obvious to all that we were related, and uh, we, of course, both have unfortunately a rather. Uh, uh, uncontrolled sense of humor that has made made difficulties uh, many times. So, so I think it was quite evident to all that we were that we were related. I think it's really interesting to hear you say work extra hard for that because I think a lot of people think nepotism results and you don't have to work extra hard, right? Or the other relationships. And and I also worked with my dad and or in in a different kind of way. But you know, I always felt that I had to over overperform. I agree. You know, it's interesting when I was interviewing for Harvard Medical School, the interviewer asked me if I thought I had received this interview only because of my father. That was a question that he mm-hmm. came out with early in the interview, and I said no. <laughs> so they, you know, they put it all on the table. That's so, so there funny. you have it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can't. Um, 
that's, that's, that's someone brilliant. who obviously didn't read any of your CV or anything else you've ever thought oh, no, no, or no. done. But it, but yeah. it was interesting. I, I later worked that, that. He later was one of our co-residents at Mass General, David. I won't. Okay. Say All right. We'll talk. <laughs> <after>. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk. So so after. Yeah. So let's get to that. So then you. Um, uh, as to, to return towards the apotheosis of your career when we uh, trained together. No, um, I, I, no, no, but then actually, so then, uh, actually, so then you went on actually to do your residency um, at, a, at a man's greatest um, and in your I fellowship did. in oncology uh, at DeFarber with a classmate, one of your classmates is some obscure author, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Sid. Um, so how, exactly. how did you, how did those experiences, the residency and the fellowship compare? And in particular, how did you decide to do oncology, which can be, you know, as he obviously art, you know, articulates on, on behalf of essentially all fellow, you know, oncology fellows, such a brutal and demanding, but intensely personal and at some level incredibly rewarding experience. How, how did you decide how fellowship versus residency and then how oncology? So great questions, and I will I will just amend that while I certainly did work with our colleague Sid McGurchy, who's wonderful in residency, I actually uh, went to Stanford for fellowship, and this was solely for personal reasons. Uh, my husband, whom I had met on a long distance blind date when I was an intern, uh, was I, I did indeed uh, set up by my Stanford roommate. So it matters where you go to college, uh, but at any rate, uh, so my my husband was working at Oracle in in California, and I needed to get out west, and I interviewed at UCSF in Stanford. UCSF wouldn't give me the time of day. Stanford said I could do fellowship there. So I did. Um, and that, that was the story there. Uh, so just setting, <laughs> set, setting that part straight. Uh, but very similar otherwise. I think residency was, uh, as David, you may be able to attest, uh, an incredibly grueling experience that was sort of a transition, I suppose, to adulthood. Uh, and while it was not a whole lot of fun at the time, I... It made you stronger? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Nothing has ever been as bad since. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> How do you so as a non-doctor, as the token non-doctor in this conversation? Oh, some sanity. Um, what is it about that? You know, how do you pick your field? Like, what right. is it that drew you to that particular yep. field? Yep. You know, specialized. Yep. So, so I will tell you a funny reason and a more serious reason. So, the funny reason, which David has heard already, uh, is so I knew I wanted to do something that was kind of a, a classic internal medicine field, which means you sort of do something that isn't limited to one organ, and you know, you work with something that involves the whole body. So that would give you maybe rheumatology or infectious disease or, or oncology. And I didn't want to do rheumatology because no one ever knows if someone really has a diagnosis and it's sort of a checklist of symptoms and it drives me nuts because I need, to, I need to be certain about what they have, right? It drives me nuts when I don't know what's going on. Uh, then I thought, okay, maybe infectious disease, that'll be cool. Uh, I then had this, again, the anxiety acting up, right? I then had this very vivid fear that someday as an ID fellow, I would be paged in the middle of the night to have to go deal with a parasite of some kind, like a worm or something. And the thought of me having to actually deal with a worm, just, I, I, would have, I would have had to leave. I would have had to just leave and never come back again. And so I thought, okay, I cannot do infectious diseases. It leaves oncology. And besides, the drugs are cooler. I actually believe you. Uh, <laughs> it's actually true. <laughs> was it as grueling as people imagined that it would be? So, and I'll tell you the serious reason too. So I, a few, a few different things. I think, you know, I told you that I, I was interested in the intersection of science and thinking about literature and narrative. And the thing about oncology, you know, boy, is this an interesting story. This is not sort of the boring moment where somebody comes in because they have acne or they have, you know, something dull that we can just deal with. This is, this is sort of the pivotal moment and it is an incredibly interesting narrative. And to be with people at that time and have the opportunity 
opportunity to attempt to shift the narrative for good, both in the patient and potentially generations forward in the family, which is what a lot of my genetics work about is about, uh, has been very powerful. I will also say I will also say that my college roommate unfortunately uh, died young of leukemia at 24, and that that in itself was another was another experience that pushed me in the direction of oncology. Interesting. Wow. So um, I'm really sorry about your the the roommate. I didn't know about that. Um, when you were mentioning about the, um, the the work involving not just people but families, um, tell us about the work that you're doing now. So you do clinical cancer genetics. You you're a leader in that, a national leader in that, um, and and leading a center at uh, Stanford. How did you wind up in this area, and what are the sort of things that you that, you, that you're focused on? And maybe on? a description of what that really means. Absolutely. So it's been a privilege to lead the Women's Clinical Cancer Genetics Program at Stanford, and I've been doing that since, oh, around 2003 or so. Uh, So it's been a while now and has been great fun to watch the program grow. What we do is see patients who are referred usually by their oncologist or by their primary care doctor because they have an unusual personal or family history, usually of breast or gynecologic cancer. So they were diagnosed unusually young, or they have lots of relatives with these cancers. And what we do is analyze family history, and we will offer genetic counseling and genetic testing to see if we can identify an inherited cause in the family, for example, a BRCA1 or other gene mutation that might be the answer. And then if we find it, we can make plans for how to reduce cancer risks among the patient and her relatives. Well, I mean, you're really at the, I mean, one of the, you know, sort of in a sense, a connection with the show in particular is you're really sort of as sort of almost like a lead user, you might say, or a frontline provider in the technology implementation of, I mean, really on the, you know, your field probably wouldn't have been possible, you know, 25 years ago or would have looked extremely different. Um, how has it evolved even since you've done it? And, and what are the sort of the... Um, what, how has that changed? I mean, you've mentioned reductions in the cost of testing. How has that changed how patients and physicians are thinking about the issues? Well, that's an incredibly important topic and a really interesting question. When I started out in the field back in 2003 or so, we really could test people only for two genes. We could test people for BRCA1 and BRCA2. It was incredibly expensive. It was more than $3,000 out of pocket if insurance didn't pay for it, which often it didn't. So we were very, very restricted in whom we could test. Sometimes we'd want to test for an additional gene like TP53, which causes leaf Remini syndrome, and we often couldn't because it would be $1,000 per gene. So we were very, yeah, I know it's remarkable. We were very, very, very restricted in what we could do. And then about About six years ago, five and a half years ago, there was a remarkable change that was brought about by two things, one of them being a change in the technology with next generation sequencing coming in so you can sequence many genes much more cheaply than you ever could before. And at the same time, in June of 2013, there was a Supreme Court decision that it was not permissible to patent a gene. And so those those two things conspired to enable us to sequence many, many more genes much more quickly and cheaply than ever before. And so how has that played out in your practice? It's just absolutely compelling and incredibly interesting. One of the things is that we now are having the chance to bring back families that we'd seen before where we'd tested for BRCA1 and 2 and the test was negative. We didn't find the answer. We now can bring them back and test for 20, 50, 100 genes, and we often will now find the answer. 
so that's incredibly exciting. I mean, talk about a narrative experience. It's like this really exciting sequel, right, in terms of what, what happens with these families. Uh, so that's thrilling. Right, right. Uh, and being able to close in and get the answer that can help more families is just incredibly rewarding. But there, I think there's a... Uh, a com- uh, I don't know what I want to call it. A different, a different side to the story too is that you, you know, some people get genetic tests and they find they have certain genes and that that might, might possibly result in horrible diseases and might, might, right. might not. You know, yep. and I think puts the patient in a real quandary about what to do about it because some of the answer is quite yep. draconian uh, to preempt. It, re- it really can the care. Yeah. And so, I mean, how do you counsel patients? How do you engage a patient in that decision making process? So I. I- I agree with you completely. And I think, you know, it's so interesting now because we have this cheap, readily available technology. And I think that's great. It's really good for people to have access to it. At the same time, it's absolutely crucial that the results be interpreted correctly and not in a way that leads people to panic or to do things that may be very invasive and not required or not helpful. So I think doing this in partnership with an expert team of genetic counselors, physicians who can advise about what the risks are and what the options are in a way that engages the patient and his or her preferences is absolutely essential. There's a pretty dark shortage of these uh, genetic counselors in the country. Do you think that the the work that you do, I'm sure here around Stanford and, and, and around um, you know, Harvard, that's not a big problem. But I think in other parts of the country, it's very hard to find these folks. How do you, you know, build that um, team around the oncologist that really can work with the patient and make sure they get that level of, you know, in- information that they can help them move forward? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I think that's that's a key question. And in fact, you know, Although we certainly are incredibly well-resourced at Stanford, we have had to triple our, our team in recent years to keep up with the patient volume. It's incredibly interesting, and you know we're glad to do that, but it's, it's really uh, a mm-hmm. huge need that's coming in. We, we have a very active training program at Stanford, as do other academic centers, and that's good. But I think we're not close mm-hmm. to meeting the demand. And I, I think there's been a lot of exploration of different care delivery models of, c- can we do this by telemedicine? Can we do this in group settings? what might be possible here. And so those are still being studied. Some of my uh, research has been involved in some of those things as well. And I think it's key that we think about how we can be more efficient and effective in the delivery. And indeed, you know, involving oncologists is very important. Increasingly, we see these results being used to select targeted therapy for treatment of cancer. And so I think having oncologists integrated in the process is, is really important. Well, I wanted to ask you about um, something related to this. Was your own, your, your, some work that you did about um, highlighting the need to improve the how, how many oncologists are, are even educated about um, uh, cancer and genetics. Um, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I was surprised by this because I had sort of always held a view that, yeah, everyone always says more education needing. It's sort of like at the mm-hmm. end of a paper, you know, more fun, more research is needed, <laughs> you know, um, like, because I actually thought that, okay, well, once you have some of the data, like for the, um, like NIPT, right, for the, you know, um, it's like people are like, oh, technology, you know, there's a lot of thought of how is it that you know, how do you teach doctors about genetics? And then all of a sudden, when this non-invasive sort of screening became available for folks who were pregnant, everyone figured it was like the, the it was a test that was adopted faster than almost any test in the history of medicine, apparently. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, mm-hmm. well, what do you know? They figured it out when they actually when it was actually a useful test that means something. But your research says, okay, provides. I mean, I want you to go through it, but it, it provides an example of how actually, you know, even when there's 
knowledge available and, 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 and an impetus and a, a, an obligation to, 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 to do things in a different way, doctors explicitly are, are screwing up and they're not doing it. I, it's not, I don't think right. that was the words of your paper, mm-hmm. but, but that, that's what they're doing. Could you go through what <laughs> you... the subtext. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But could you go through what you found and sort of the implications? Absolutely. So it really used to be, as I was describing before 2013, that the barrier was the, the process of testing. So it was slow. It was expensive. We couldn't get it done. Uh, things changed in recent years, and we're in this era of abundance where you can get lots and lots of testing very quickly and very cheaply. So in a way, that's wonderful. Uh, But I think we have discovered a new barrier. And in many ways, that barrier is the clinicians. And these are clinicians, again, not to throw rocks at anybody. I'm of the same era, of course, but who who weren't trained ever to think that this was a core skill necessary for oncology or surgery or anything else. And so I think it's it's changed very rapidly. And so what we find is that in some cases, we see under-testing. So we see patients who clearly should be tested, not getting tested. That seems to be a big problem, particularly in ovarian cancer, uh, a huge problem. But we also see with breast cancer, people are getting tested. It's just that what they're getting told by their doctors often is wrong. And we know this through surveys of clinicians and things like interpreting an uncertain result as a positive result and thinking that it's reason to do preventive surgery, right, which clearly is damaging and, and, and not a good thing. So I think there's, there's clearly a deficit in what people know about the meaning of these results and what to do about them. But the lore about ovarian cancer is that the tests are not very good, that they're not very predictive, actually, of disease. Um, is that changed? You know what I think that might be uh, would be the test, the screening test that would be a blood test called CA125. And you're absolutely right. That test is unfortunately not good. Uh, the test that I'm thinking of would be the germline sequencing of BRCA1, BRCA2, and now several other genes that actually is really good for ovarian cancer. And those mutations are much more prevalent in ovarian cancer than in breast cancer and much more predictive of treatment benefit. So for more, for more than a decade, the oncology society and OB-GYN societies have stated that all ovarian cancer patients should be tested. And we actually presented results at the American Society of of Clinical Oncology meeting last year that showed that only 30% are tested. So when you think about that, it's clearly a huge gap. So it's not as much for diagnosis as for people who are showing up, well, who are, but but who have, uh, who've been diagnosed with Mm -hmm. ovarian cancer. But then the question is, might they be at risk for other types of cancer because of this genetic mutation? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And might their family be at risk? That too. But I guess in theory, though, if you got this, these tests, even if you don't have it, you would know, I mean, if you can, oh, exactly. you, know, you would know that you might have right. a large propensity for it. So you might say, oh, well, you know, get the ovaries out, you know, if you're exactly. past childbearing years or something like yep. that. So that's and an that's interesting thing. I, yep. Yeah, I haven't heard much about that. Right. So two two things. Um, One, I mean, I don't think this is too detailed, but um, so because you raised it, um. I think the thing that sort of bedevils everyone in genetics is this concept of VUS, yes. the, the variance of uncertain yep. significance, which sounds like something from The Princess Bride. Yeah, right? really? Rodents <laughs> <laughs> are unusual US. size. But could you explain concisely what this is sure. and why it drives people batty? Yes, I will do my best. We'll see what I, what I come up with. So at any rate, what this typically is is a sequence variation 
So a change from what is considered normal, and there's the rub, what is considered normal, right? Um, that seems unlikely to disrupt the function of the protein. So it's usually not a premature stop or something like that. It's usually, you know, a missense change, a single substitution or something like that. And we just don't know whether it actually affects the function of the protein. And so it will be read out as of uncertain significance. I will tell you that from the, the breast cancer genetics field, eventually most of those get reclassified. And the estimate has been that 90 to 95% of these VUS will get reclassified to completely normal. So hmm. if you were a betting person, the right bet is ignore this thing. It's not going to be important. But not everybody seems to be able to absorb that. But is that the betting thing to do, by the way? Is that the betting thing? Because if it's nor, you know, if you're in the 5%, right. um, I mean, how do you manage that? Right. And from a doctor perspective, how do you manage the liability? Well, liability is a whole different kettle of fish. And I think... I don't mean legal, but you know what I mean? Like, like more of the moral liability. Right. Exactly. Well, I think it's tricky because I think there are two ways you could play it wrong. I mean, certainly if you as a doctor missed the the 5% of the VUS that were going to go bad, that would be a really bad problem. And so I think there is an obligation as, as a physician and, or a genetic counselor to follow up with the laboratory that gave this result and see if anything has changed. And we do that periodically. But you can see that there are many ways that could go wrong in the community. Yeah, exactly. Oh exactly. My gosh, yeah. um, but the other way that you could do harm and that we see harm being done is to over-treat it, right? So 90, 95% of the time it's nothing, and yet we know that people get prophylactic surgery inappropriately for VUS. So right. I think, again, this is a nuance, and it is something that needs to be explained to patients carefully by people who understand it, and that patients should not panic over this, that we should not over-treat it. But of course, it does need to be followed. So I agree with you that it's tricky. And it's one of the reasons that a genetic test is not the same thing as getting a complete blood count or something as simple as that. It's complicated, and there are nuances to it that need to be managed. I can just imagine how complicated it is, because you, know, you think about it from like the worst, you know, from the worst case perspective side, it's, um, you know, in other words, you don't know at the time you're making the call, but the VUS could be bad. I mean, like it could be frankly pathological. It's just no one knows that yet. Sometimes you can sort of get a sense. So, you know, if it's an intronic deletion or if, if it, you know, something looks big, that maybe it's, it really might be a bad one as opposed to something that looks sort of harmless. Sometimes the lab will give you a sense of that. You can compare with other labs, things like that. So we sort of try to sleuth it out. But again, you can imagine that the average generalist is not going to be wanting to do that. So it is tricky. So what about... Um the research you're doing on the, the cascade testing of relatives and how yes. how that plays a role in what you do. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I think that may be the most important public health piece of all of this is that really with genetics, the whole promise of the field has been, can we get to people before they get sick when we know that they have high risk and do something to prevent the disease, right? That was always the dream of this field. And so the best way to find people in the population who have these genetic mutations is to find people who have the disease, right? I mean, go where the money is. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you find them, but then their relatives, of course, have a 50-50 chance of inheriting this condition. And those are the people whom you need to get to and test them and see if they need targeted prevention. The challenge is that in the United States, we're really quite bad at that, even in the best mm -hmm. settings probably only about 30% of these relatives actually do get tested. And so something needs to be done. Part of it's an insurance problem, right? I mean, is insurance going to pay to have people tested who have no symptomology and things like that? It's often not going to be covered and it's not going to uh -huh. be cheap. All private insurances do. Mm -hmm. And uh, Medicaid, Medi-Cal usually does. 
The one that won't is Medicare, which don't get me started on how stupid that is. But <laughs> all, all the others do. All the others do. But now what about some of the, um, I mean, we, we've sort of discussed this, where, where some of the folks who have done the research on, um, uh, you know, some of the, uh, you know, Mary Claire King, right, has uh, talked about the, that because families in a sense are smaller and smaller, you might have a family, you know, like basically a gene might be in your family because there aren't just enough family members known right. to you or, or yep. well, you might not know it. Yep. And she sort of pushed for essentially universal screening, as I understand it, um, yep. for, uh, for, for, for BRCA1 and 2. Right. One, am I describing it right? And two, what's your reaction to that? So I think you are describing it right, though, of course, I can't speak for her. And I think there's something to be said, and there are many groups, really, that are moving toward this question of, of should we test everybody? Um, I think, again, if you do that in the general population, the concern is that you'll find a lot of these VUS. And for many people, the chance of finding a VUS will be much higher than the chance of finding a meaningful result. And with knowledge among clinicians as it is right now, you might have a chance of doing more harm than good. So it then becomes a question of could we target a bit more rationally? So certainly we should test all ovarian cancer patients. Should we maybe at some point think about testing all breast cancer patients? Maybe we should. Should we consider testing in targeted ethnic groups that we know to have higher prevalence? Probably we should. So I think we're, we're taking steps toward those sorts of, of policies. But again, it's going to be a question of managing return of results and how do we do this without doing harm. But also, so do you recommend that people, just regular people walking around who might have some of these family issues, you know, go to Helix or Color or some of these companies and get consumer testing, uh, you know, consumer paid testing before they come to you? Is that something you recommend? Well, no, you know, I mean, I'm sort of stodgy, right? Because I'm an academic doctor and I think that we add some value. So I tend to like for them to, <laughs> for them to come to us and, and consult with us about uh, their family history. We take a thorough family history and sometimes we have suggestions about exactly which test will be most useful. So ideally, a pre-testing consultation, I think, can be very helpful if it can be done. So one last question, again, just about this stuff. Let's say the health person without someone without a known family history. It sounds like you're saying the key downside risk is from, um, I'm tempted to think from our you know, residents here, our, you know, OSH doc, right? Um, but it's from, from <laughs> but no, no, but it's from somebody, outside hospital, but from somebody who yep. it essentially is from the result being mismanaged, not so much from a yep. false positive from the test itself. Correct. Um, so, so, does, so I I would just temper that with saying there are differences between laboratories, and I think some are some are better than others, and there are some that have, you know, data have emerged showing that they do, in fact, have unreliable results. So I think there is a need to take care there. But wouldn't an implication be that if you're trying to be a top, if, one, if you are a top-tier hospital, whether like, whether presumably like Stanford or MGH or any, whatever, any of the, or Intermountain or Geisinger, then actually the best thing you could do for your patient, symptomatic, with family history or not, is getting the testing, but just making sure that your doctors are trained up in the interpretation. I mean, isn't that kind of what, or is that what you're saying? So I think that the testing is important. I, I'm not quite yet at the point of advocating universal testing because I think the way this information is handled is really important, and I'm not sure we're there yet. So I think at the moment, probably the most effective thing to do is targeted testing. I would cast the net much more broadly than we used to and do a great job at that, then making sure we cascade to relatives. It may be that at some point we're able to do effective universal testing, and we'll see what happens. Well, it's always such a, a pleasure and uh, just uh, intellectually thrilling to chat with you and to just 
to talk and spend time with you. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, on the show today. And uh, so excited by the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm ready to come make an appointment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much for having me. It was really wonderful. We were just speaking with Dr. Allison Curian, director of the Stanford Women's Clinical Cancer Genetics Program. What a fascinating conversation, huh? Well, I'll tell you, it's particularly fascinating to me because I think most women, uh, and I was speaking and was one of them, who go to gynecologists and the like, uh, never hear about this stuff. You know, are nev- really? Very rarely. I, I, I have never once been told, given that I have significant family history in breast cancer, that I should go get genetic testing. Huh. Not once. Uh, you should see Allison. Yeah, I might do that. <laughs> um, well. Uh, it's And, you know, I kind of like know what I'm doing on the healthcare side generally right. more than a lot of people, right, who have no exposure to it. So I think I've thought about it actually myself lately. and, and uh, But I think um, with respect to ovarian, with respect to breast cancer, with respect to the things that, that Allison's working on, you know, it's not in the general parlance of medicine for women. I mean, the gap is extraordinary. And actually, some of the folks that are, look, you know, I've written before, I don't have any investment. I'm in color genetics. They're working through employers to try to sort of increase yeah. access that way. And I know other folks are in this space as well. Many people wouldn't go for testing unless their doctor suggested it. Because why? I mean, and normally, by the way, those things, they're not really consumer. I mean, right. you still have to have it referred to exactly. by a doctor. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. You can follow Lisa Sunan at VentureValkyrie.com. Please also remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. We're grateful to our sponsor, RockPoint. RockPoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to www.rockpoint.com. With an e on the end.com. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in scenic but not as scenic as Palm Drive in Palo Alto, Mill Valley, California. Be well. I beg to differ. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>